Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. I'm Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine. Our guest on episode 47 is Neil Bailey, a motorcycle journalist and TV show host who has documented his adventures and travels around the world. We recorded this interview while Bailey was at the Barber Advanced Design Center at the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, where he serves as a media liaison and content producer. The Barber Vintage Festival had just taken place, and during the festival, the Design Center hosted seminars led by Pierre Turblanche, Miguel Galuzzi, and others. During this episode, we took a trip down memory lane. Bailey was at my first press launch in 2008, an event that lives in infamy. We talk about how Bailey got involved in motorcycle journalism and his work for both magazines and TV. We also talk about Wellspring International Outreach, a nonprofit Bailey founded whose mission is to bring aid and attention to the abandoned and at-risk children throughout the world. Earlier this year, Bailey and photographer Kieran Ridley rode motorcycles through Ukraine to document the human toll of the war, particularly among women and children. Their photos and story are available on writermagazine.com, and they'll be featured in the January 2023 issue of Writer. Bailey is an interesting, funny, well-traveled motorcyclist who puts his beliefs and values into action. This is a great episode, so stay tuned. Hey, Neil. Yeah. All right, cool. We're, we're, we're live now. Well, we're not live. We're recording at least. <laughs> so, Beautiful. so you're you? you're at the Barber Vintage Festival, right? I am actually in the Advanced Design Center. Um, it's on the top floor of the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. This is the new mission and uh, direction for Mr. Barber here, working with Brian Case, and uh, we're up and running. So this weekend during Vintage Festival. We hosted design symposiums. We brought in Miguel Galuzzi from Piaggio. We brought in uh, Pieter Blanche was here because he's been working on a project with the Advanced Design Center. Uh, we had Ed Boyd in who did the Fuse recently with a revival cycle. Um, we actually had Greg Brew down from Polaris Industries. Uh, Neil Spalding, the MotoGP technical writer and author, came. And it was just this amazing uh, meeting of the minds, you know, these brilliant people from our industry. Um, think of the Advanced Design Center as Switzerland. They can just come here and be neutral and share ideas and, you know, just just allowing free thought. Um, Jesse James dropped by, which was very cool because he was able to sort of audit in on the main uh, the main panel discussion, which, of course, was a great... The audience didn't realize he was here and he was sort of listening in, in the back. He got such a buzz out of being here. Um, you know, he made some social media posts afterwards, you know, I'm in the gun world now, but, you know, my first love is motorcycling. So he had not been to Barber. And, of course, he went out and wandered around and watched the races. Because, you know, Vintage Festival, as you know, is the biggest festival here in the States every year. Yeah, and I, it's a sad thing for me to admit that I have not yet been to the Barber Vintage Festival. Everybody I've talked to who's been there, I know Peter Jones is there. He went last year and wrote a story about it for us. Is It's, it's one of the premier events to attend and I'm, I'm ashamed to say i haven't been there yet so i have to put on my calendar for next year so well, you've got a job it's an excuse right <laughs> well i haven't figured out a way to get my job to get me there yet so yeah but uh you know being in california getting to birmingham you know the the uh, another sad admission on my part is i've never actually been to the barber museum i went to the barber racetrack in 2004 i attended like when they first opened it and it was an ama superbike race there but I have not actually been to the museum. And again, I know that you need to dedicate some time to do that. So going to the festival is one thing, but you also need to uh, dedicate some, you know, focused time to be in that museum for at least a day or two. So, yeah. Well, and I think that 
this is a perfect opportunity to extend an invitation for you to come. You know, we'll host you here at the Advanced Design Center so you can see what this, you know, this is to, to think about the future. And right. it's not for people like yourself who've been in the industry for many, many years and have a broad picture of motorcycling from the lens that you wear as editor of a big publication and put that information and that brain trust into the design center. It helps us figure out where we're going and it's a contribution. And while you're here, we've obviously got the world's largest motorcycle collection for you to just go and get inspiration from. That's the big thing for people. Yeah. Where else can you sit here thinking about the future, talking about design, rubbing shoulders perhaps with the world's greatest designers and then just walk through the door and go and look at the world's greatest designs? Right. Well, interesting is I actually interviewed Brian Case uh, last year for the podcast and he was telling me, I mean, that was right when the Advanced Design Center had opened. And so, you know, we were talking about how there are obviously design centers and studios within the behind closed doors at every major OEM. But that's not something the public normally gets access to. As you were just saying, this is kind of a neutral Switzerland sort of space where it can be almost like a think tank that is open to a lot of people, and a lot of ideas, but it's not necessarily something that's got to be kept secret because OEMs are trying to develop their products for the future and so forth. So that's a very unique situation and environment. Well, and I think, yeah, absolutely to your point is that we've all, you and I included, only seen product you know, you and I have been a little fortunate that we get to see product before the public does because that's been our job to tell the public what the product's like. But we've never actually watched the design process. So nobody sees the product until it's actually on a showroom floor or in a magazine. And what we're able to do here is completely disseminate the process of design, get into Pierre and Brian's head. Right see what they're thinking and watch their whole process as they went from an idea to CAD drawings. to And then, of course, because of the advanced design sense technology, Brian's actually able to 3D print what's been in Pierre's head and what's on his computer. So you can actually see a physical rather, I mean, we have the renderings and you can look at the digital imagery, right. but you can look at a physical full scale quote-unquote motorcycle it's not a motorcycle it's a 3d printed version of pierre's design so it's a fascinating opportunity for the world to see something that they like you said they've been it's been behind closed doors forever so what is your involvement with the design center these days well you know i've had a relationship with brian case for 18 years i've had a relationship with the barber museum uh, for 18 well 17 years yeah from track days to press tests to stories articles tv and videos so when brian started this whole advanced design center process because he called me up and said hey would you help me uh, connection media stories right he's help with because he can't do everything himself so i'm just assisting him you know, whether it's making coffee for, a, we have a, a journalist in today, you know, whether it's making coffee for a journalist or whether it's helping someone put out a press release, maybe photographing, it's just whatever's needed to be done or creating video story, which is part of my background. Right. Yeah. Well, that liaison role is very important because there are people like us with magazines that I know to interface with Brian or with the museum and try to, you know, uh, learn about specific bikes. Uh, is, is pretty key. And I know that you were saying that, um, you know, with people attending the Barber Vintage Festival, Peter Jones, who writes a column for us, is there. Uh, and he said he was going to spend some time attending some of these seminars and, and talking to Brian. So, yeah, it sounds like a, a, a great place to be. Like I said, I'm, I'm really sorry I'm not there. <laughs> when you get, we'll, 
it'll be nice um, we'll make special time for you and then you can identify some projects because i mean the main thing is when you come here your job is to share what's here with your readers right right and the excitement you, you get you can translate to them and then hopefully encourage them to come and see for themselves which is what we really want to do well and that's one of the things that barbara has always been very generous about is with access to bikes photography support and so forth because i mean they have just such an encyclopedic collection that uh, if you want to understand the evolution of certain designs certain brands or so forth well they have the examples that you can you can look at uh, you know across different styles different brands of motorcycle which is which is great so so yeah, hey, I th good thing for you one more thing to, to, to finish out on that, you know, like with your focus more on travel and touring, perhaps specifically, you know, I was talking to Kevin, Kevin Duke the other day, obviously he works with B-Twin and, and American motorcycles. Well, he can come here and thoroughly focus on what his specific audience wants, because we've got that. Right. You can focus specifically on what your audience wants. Sure. You want to do something with the Jim Rogers around the world travel bikes. You want to look at the evolution of sport touring bikes. I mean, this is whatever you want, whatever any editor wants for their particular genre is right here under one roof. Right, right. So, hey, I wanted to just kind of like roll the clock back a little bit. So when I started working at Ryder, so I was hired from outside the industry. I was hired in March of 2008 as road test editor. And just a couple months later, I went to my very first press launch. And this was... We, so what you're saying is we we don't want to tell the public about your first crash on your first press <laughs> witnessed. Well, I was going to say you were at that very, you were at my very first press launch. It was, it's become somewhat of a infamous legendary press launch where, yes, I broke rule number one, which is the rule number one of any press launches don't crash. And rule number two is see rule number one. And of course I crashed on my first press launch. But there were other things that happened. I'm not going to name names or any specifics. No, good, there were good. tickets. There were some tickets issued. There was somebody who was hauled off in handcuffs. But for that to be my very first press launch was, uh, I would say, it's a baptism by fire. So, so I think you dodged a huge bullet because we won't mention Steve Nat's name and how he went to jail. But that <laughs> it took the heat off you because suddenly we had much bigger fish to fry than you crashing on your first intro which the, and the other good thing was thankfully Killboy got it in multiple frames so we could all enjoy it at the bar later we didn't I, just have to yeah i mean <laughs> if you're gonna crash on the tail of the dragon try not to crash in the corner where the Killboy photography is there yeah no i have the frame by frame of my you know humiliation and fortunately it was it, I ended up in a ditch full of leaves. It was a low side crash. I wasn't injured. The bike was rideable. I got as about as lucky as you can to make such a foolish mistake on road like Tail of the Dragon. But so how did you how did you get into the I mean, this is a, the motorcycle journalism game. I mean, you've done written for lots of different magazines. You've done TV shows. How did you get into this game? I was always a traveler, been hitchhiking and traveling around the world since I was a kid. And um, I was 15 when I took my first hitchhiking trip from Scotland to England by teenage years i was bombing and backpacking and great picking around europe you know came to america with a backpack in my early 20s heavily influenced as so many people in my generation were by ted simon jupiter's travels oh yeah so as soon as i was in a position to scratch the money to get that for a motorcycle um i bought an old honda cb 550 in florida Ten thousand miles later i was within five miles of the arctic circle and had to give up um something i actually rectified in 2014 on a subsequent trip and it just one thing led to the other. I think I came skidding back from Europe in about 1997, I think it was. I 
was broke. I was on the bones of my ass. I mean, I just was cold and tired. I'd just done a big, long trip to the four corners of Europe. And I'm like, you know what? Someone needs to pay me for doing this. <laughs> I was just being the broke guy in the bar with the snapshots right. dating my photographs. It has the coolest stories. Why not get paid for it? By 1999, I was riding across the Himalayas of northern India. And this is an interesting connection to you that I, I came home with a concept I want to write a story about it. And uh, Fast Bikes magazine was there writing a story and filming, which gave me a lot of ideas. And just quite by chance, a family friend of my family friend connected me to Mark Tuttle, uh -huh. who said, about that for Rider magazine. So I wrote my story, took it to an editor friend of mine. She promptly said, it's shit, rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> Which was like the most humbling experience of your life because you're like, yeah, my story's ready. It's going to a magazine. So like, that's shit, rewrite it. Thankfully, she helped me rewrite it. Mark Tuttle took it, ran it, and uh, it just launched me. You know, my first article went in a big national magazine, Rider Magazine. I suddenly had the chops to say, you might have seen my work in Rider Magazine. <laughs> right? I mean, I hadn't written anything else for anybody else. Yeah. Had no career, no history. And one thing led to the other. And I just kept, you know, figuring this out. And the little ace in the hole for me was I also wrote for free paper. They had these such things at the time called Cycle Scene. And one day I had the bright idea that if I could write for one free paper, pre-internet, of course, yeah. I could write. So suddenly I became very valuable to the manufacturers because they could take me to a press introduction and I could put it in five, eight or ten magazines because right. it was and my career was launched i bumped into dennis gage i started doing television started doing video well luckily he kept me in production for about three years a lot of people said yeah why aren't you hosting neil why aren't you hosting i think they think anyone with an english accent should be a tv host not they can ignore the ugly big nose look I have and um but he kept me in production so i learned both ends of the, the production i learned both ends of television and, you know, one thing has led to the other, and here we are. And uh, I think, as you know, you know, just a few weeks ago, I found myself riding through Ukraine. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to ask, it, like, before before we get to Ukraine, let's uh, let's jump back a little bit because it's connected to your trip to Ukraine. So, it, but in 2011, uh, I think that's right, you started Wellspring International. So you've been traveling the world, you've been writing about it, you've been a uh, TV host. So, but you uh, made the decision to become a philanthropist and start a nonprofit. Tell us about your decision to do that, what your organization focuses on. I think that was a decision made for me in childhood due to the television program we watched. We were always raising money for Africa. You know, my mother, even into her late 80s, was still hosting coffee mornings to raise money for lifeboats and lifeboat men on our coast. I live in a very violent ocean coast of, or the coast of England and they're all volunteers right so so I've always lived in a family that was philanthropic thinking and donation and sponsorship and it's very much a Brit thing so around 2008 I did a medical mission at an orphanage in Peru that uh, I was connected to I'd been riding a motorcycle in 95 it took me a while met a crazy priest he was looking after the orphanage he died always had this idea I need to go help and at the same time, I was doing a travel television show with Dennis Gage, the my classic car celebrity. And I sort of woke up one morning in early March of 2009, and I'm like, I've got this TV show, which is great. I loved it. I love tripping on two wheels. I love traveling. It was a family show. Nothing bad about it. 
And, I, and I'm also, I've just started my foundation, Wellspring International Outreach. So I've got this charity, I've got this TV show, and neither of them were giving me the fulfillment I wanted. I felt that the travel show was, wasn't going deep enough. And I felt like I was being really unsuccessful at the fundraising and the charity. And the idea came, why not put them together and make Neil Bailey rides, which is motorcycle traveling with philanthropy. And that conspired to become the national television show, Neil Bailey Rides Peru in 2013, which aired on the Speed Network. And we raised a lot of money for my projects in Peru. So the, again, the, it's, it's, it's me using the tools of my trade. Right. You know, if I was a, maybe I'd be down there building houses. If I was a doctor, I'd be doing medical stuff. I'm a journalist and a storyteller and a visual presenter with television. So why not put these concepts together? Right, right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, I mean, that's you're doing a lot of good work. I know that there are some people that, you know, the motorcycle community has supports a lot of different charities in a lot of different ways, but you are uh, unique amongst motorcycle journalists that you know that you've got a voice, you've got a platform that you have reach and an audience, and that's how you can draw people in that can, you know, donate some, some money. So so tell us about, you know, uh, everybody's aware of the, the war in the Ukraine and, and, and how sad that is, but tell us about your decision and what it was like to you and a photographer rode motorcycles in the Ukraine recently. What, what was that about? Well, it actually does link back to motorcycling, Greg. You know, as a young man in England, obviously piloting unemployment and drugs and all the things that we went through, you know, idle hands of the devil's workshop, my old mother would say. And it led me to having a Laverda 1200 motorcycle. It led me to a friendship with a guy called Simon Newton. And this is 1982. By 84, I've made this first trip west to America. He went east to Eastern Europe, and we sort of crossed paths once again in 96 in Romania. And then I didn't see him again for 26 years, lost contact with him. Finally decided I should start writing stories about the old Liberta days and that whole looking back on my life and motorcycle. And that story found Simon. Simon is now putting on a photography exhibition in the Middle East, he saw that I do TV and media, said I like that style, invited me out to the Middle East. And yes. while I met Kieran Ridley, he's an award-winning photographer, struck up a bond with him. And this year we were there as the war was kicking off. So I'm suddenly around a lot of conflict photographers. James Nackway was there, Steve McCurry, who's famous for Afghan Girl. And I'm interviewing and getting into the head. Heidi Levine, the Washington Post photographer, who's actually on the front lines right now. And on and on and on, I'm in this mindset of photographers that have covered war and conflict. And it changes your thinking again, you know, just in the same way that I went from a nice TV show to starting a charity to putting it together to make adventure travel television for philanthropy, right. suddenly about conflict in a different way. Um, we rode motorcycles around the Middle East to get a break from it. And I came home and as soon as I saw the war kick off, I'm like, I've got to do something. And, you know, I don't want any political kickback on this. You know, I just couldn't look at images of women and children being blown up, shot, tortured, killed, losing limbs, losing their homes and not do something. Right. And you can have any ideology you want. That's your entitled. That was my decision. Yeah. And I got a phone call one night, quite late for me, very late for Ukrainian time from my friend Kieran Ridley. He was actually inside Ukraine as the war was kicking off. 
And he was riding a very cheap, broken down Chinese motorcycle to the Polish border because there was 30 mile lines of refugees. And you have to hire a fixer inside these countries to get around. It's very expensive to have a fixer, very expensive to be in a car. You couldn't get around, but the motorcycle gave him the access to tell the stories he needed to tell. Right. And the bike was misfiring and it was wobbling. And he called me up, just, hey, what shall I do? And I said, well, you know, try airing the tires, lining the chain, checking the forks, looking at fork oil. Maybe it's some carburetor things you can do. Just trying to get him to be safer. He was very cold, right. very under threat from the checkpoints. The Ukrainian people were exact on just on tender hook they just you know any minute now it could it could go off and so they don't know that he's not a spy he arrives with cameras and stuff even with press passes they're shaking him down they're going through his images his wife had just given birth to twins a number of months earlier in paris in his home media headlines are full of journalists getting targeted and killed he's freezing cold he's under extreme pressure and he's also riddled with an enormous amount of guilt that I can leave these people anytime. I've got to get these stories to the world. My bike's not working right. And I suddenly realized in that moment, we can have any opinion we want in the war. You know, you can be everything from pro-Putin to donating to help the Ukrainians. And that is the complete spectrum of what people in this country are thinking about this war. But we wouldn't be able to have that opinion if it wasn't for people like Kieran Ridley if it wasn't for people like Heidi Levine and Mohammed Mahosin and all of these amazing journalists that time after time after time go into these conflict zones, they risk their lives, they put their families under enormous duress and they're riddled with enormous guilt. And, you know, these guys, you're a journalist. I mean, none of us get paid a huge amount of money to do journalism. It's a struggle for them financially as well. I mean, it's not like someone just writes them a great big check. So I just said, I've got to go help. I've got to do something. And that was what kicked off the whole concept for me to go to Ukraine, was initially just to focus on these photographers and what they're bringing us. So logistically, how did you go about doing this? Because did you get a secure a bike for not only yourself, but also for Kieran for the ride that you guys did? I did. So, you know, being a motorcycle in the industry is not hurtful. So I put a call into Royale Muller and said, hey, can you hit Munich up for some BMWs? Um, I'd like to go in on a BMW. I've done my TV shows on BMWs and uh, you know, BMW uh, motor ad were immediately like, yes, you could have two bikes. And of course, we <laughs> kept having to change our, our dates because we kept running up against problems. I had to get a world press pass. My friend Simon, he has an agency. So he put all my applications into all my paperwork. My friends in the industry, Arthur at Ultimate Motorcycling, Lancer at uh, Common Tread, you know, wrote me letters of recommendation that I was an associate, you know, associate editor for their publications and did all my background checks. And that got approved. And um, at the same time, we had to put in an order for bulletproof vests and protective helmets, um, big run on bulletproof vests. No kidding. Right. And needed the very heavy grade plates. So it wasn't, I couldn't just take one locally. So there's a lot of stress waiting for my bulletproof vest. And then I had to get Ukrainian military authority to go in. So once I had the world press authority and my background and my bios and all the paperwork, we applied to the Ukrainians to get the military authority. And that was a really important hard card to have for the military. Yeah. Yeah, you can press pass. They don't recognize it. They, they do recognize that Ukrainian military pass. And I luckily got that. Right. Uh, 
Aaron ended up going back to work on a number of projects. He was doing stuff with the Daily Mail, food delivery. He worked with Lady Elena. She was the first lady that was the had her eye blown up and was the face of the war in the early days. Um, he caught COVID. He got stuck in Poland. I went off to do combat lifesaver training. Um, my physician has read my stuff for years, and he's a military physician, so he's a little war experience. And he just called me up one day, took his dinner, and said, look, you need to go figure this shit out. And he made a space for me with the American military. I was the first civilian to go through military training. And what combat lifesaver training is, it's purely battlefield uh, behavior. If somebody loses a limb, they get a bullet wound, they get burned, they're unconscious, they got a collapsed lung, any of these things, you're not there to be a medic. You're there to keep them alive until the medic arrives. Understood. And it's a five-day course. It ends up with a simulated test to see if you stay you're calm under fire and you can operate your procedures. They give you a whole procedures. And then the guys all took me to dinner. They gave me a big medical bag of stuff that I would need. And, you know, I left for Ukraine for the journey, just really hoping I would never need to use those skills that I learned with them. But it was really useful that one of us knew how to apply tourniquets and what to do with a bullet hole, what to do with severe burns, what to do with the collapsed lung. Right. It was a very, very like, good likelihood one of us could get blown up. We could come across that in our travels. So I got to Paris, met up with Kieran. The vest had arrived. We trained to Munich, picked up the bikes. Um, again, put a call to Matthew Miles, our buddy from Cycle World, who's now with Revit. Hey, can I get some gear? I, I wanted adventure gear. I needed, I wanted protective padding, rainproofing. Right. So Arai jumped in, of course, with adventure helmets. I wanted really good helmets. As, as crazy as this sounds, you go into a war zone. The last thing I need to do is have an injury from a crash. So I wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, we rode out of Munich. So we stopped through Prague to see a friend, Jana Ander. She's been, she had already done three assignments on the front line. And I think that was one, that was one of the worst days. We want to talk about shitting your pants because she has made a documentary. She was embedded with the Iraqi forces that chased ISIS out of Mosul. And this oh. girl is. Fearless. I mean, you should see a documentary. You're like, you are out of your mind, lady. And she was saying it was fucked up. She's like, there's no delineated front line. They're just bombing everywhere. Then Brent Sturton, he's an ex-South uh, African Special Forces guy. He's National Geographic, does a lot with elephants and gorillas and stuff. You know, he messaged me. He's like, dude, be careful. I've lost two friends already. This is no joke. I mean, he was very emphatic in his message to be careful. So, of course... Here we are riding for Ukraine with this all this stuff going on in your head. So there was definitely some, you know, the funny thing was, is that's all kind of like ego stuff in some sense, because nothing's really happening. It's just your imagination of what might happen. Right, right, right. So you, clearly a lot of preparation went into this and then yeah. were able to, you know, so at what time period were you and Kieran in Ukraine and how long were you there? So we crossed the border and we were in, we were in country just under three weeks. And it maybe doesn't sound like a lot of time, but when you're living your life minute by minute, it oh. felt like an eternity, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and it was really weird because, you know, we crossed the border and there was a four mile queue of traffic and these Ukrainian guys hopped in. The Polish border guards were just assholes. They wanted us back at the queue. And finally, one guy who spoke pretty good English said, thinking he'd got rid of us going, hey, well, if they'll let you in the line, you can go. And this Ukrainian guy had befriended us. He went up to everybody in there and said, look, these guys need to get through. And they all moved their cars and trucks to let us in. Wow. Even the 
been waiting there nearly five days. They were that keen to help us. You know, they knew we were journalists. They knew we were going to Ukraine. They felt so appreciative that we were coming to their country to help. And that was the absolutely every day that we were there. There was nothing but appreciation for us being there, even though like, what the hell are we doing? We're a few weeks of our life and this is your this is your life. I mean, and we crossed the border just after sundown and we had a 90 kilometer ride into Lviv in Western Ukraine. And Greg, it was like we were on a, it was like Uncle Roy Olimol had set up the perfect press launch with BMW on two lane roads, the smell of night blooming jasmine. We're going through little Ukrainian villages. We're smelling pine forests, freshly cut grass. <laughs> like, hang on a minute, we're in a war zone. What's going right. on here? And then right. we ride town on cobblestones and tram lines with parks and trees and historic buildings with one omission no people and no cars because we were after curfew so that was like the reality and then you know we get into our room and you know you you're a little bit on edge and i get a text from kieran he goes oh dude he goes uh, if it goes off in the middle of the night the air raid siren or a missile attack. He goes, just stay in bed. He goes, we might as well just go out of sleep rather than getting up and getting buried in the basement. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so you had sent us a story and, and some photos, some quite, you know, arresting photos about people that you met and some of the devastation and so forth. So how did that, how did that work to, to work your way through parts of the country? And, you know, were you restricted in where you could go? Or did you have a, a sort of a, a route in mind? I mean, how did all that work out? Because, I mean, it seems like you don't want to go right into, you know, the danger zone. But you're also, I mean, so I just don't even know how you would do a trip like this. So we were working with a guy called Omel. And uh, he's like the logistics guy. And then we had an on-the-ground fixer called Andre, ex-Ukrainian military guy. And Andre and Emil worked very closely together. And Kieran had a particularly clear idea of what he wanted to document. And going in, we didn't want to go and do frontline, blown up, exploding, death and destruction, like what's filling the news every day. Right. Not that any not that there's anything wrong there's there are people doing that we wanted to look deeper beyond that into ukraine and Emil is a really deep thinking highly intellectual gentleman who is a documentary filmmaker who now works for voices of america creating media and television about the conflict for people so he was very instrumental and helpful in finding us really interesting project so the first project we went to was a, a, an old soviet era coal mine and you might say well why go to a coal mine well you know the Ukrainians very much feel in the mind that they're fighting the energy front. They have to keep producing coal to power things so that Ukraine can fight the war. And they're very depleted. They have their men on the front line. They're suffering heavy losses in their community. And these mining communities are very close. Mothers, fathers, sons, sisters, brothers, cousins. I mean, it's, it's the whole community is involved in the mine. So when they take these losses on the battlefield, it takes away from the coal production. But it affects the whole community. And he had a very clear idea of wanting to document that component of the war, which maybe wasn't being seen. We were, you know, the, the strength of the miners was incredible. You know, retired guys going back to work, generational miners. And um, it's a very interesting experience to be 1,500 feet under the earth in a blacked out coal mine with nothing but a headlight and very primitive working conditions. I mean, it's Soviet era hasn't changed. 
O'Mill had been working on a documentary project about how the monks in a 16th century monastery had hidden Jewish boys during the Holocaust and assimilated them into the Ukrainian boys. And, you know, 80 years later, this monastery is housing refugees. So we spent this incredible day, you know, this monastery really focusing on the head abbot and monk. That was uh, Kieran's goal. A little bit the children, a little bit the refugees. I sort of worked with the refugees. He had his idea. Um, we went to an equine therapy center and spent the day with uh, soldiers that had just come back from the front line with missing limbs. And uh, one of our guys, Daniel, was four weeks away from losing a leg. And we we had this concept that we wanted to spend as much time with people if they needed it. If someone was going to sit down and tell us a story, and some of the stories we sat, you know, maybe for two hours with these soldiers, I mean, they literally described every bullet that went over their head, every explosion, every sensation. And it was just incredible. There was a young man called Anatoly, and he had been by the Azov steel plant in Mariupol. He'd gone in right at the beginning of the war. He wasn't in the steel plant. He was on the other side in Mariupol. And he led his unit out um, as it was going on. And as he was leading the unit out, he took a bullet in the arm and they tourniqueted it. And of course, nine days and 260 kilometers later, he had made it back to the Ukrainian lines. And the most harrowing story of dodging Russian lines and getting through populations of you know Russian people. They just often said they were Russian to get food. I mean, just what they went through. And it's still pretty cold at that time of year. And of course, the whole while he's traveling, his arm is dying. And of yeah. course, he said that the in smoke and the cover of the smell and he's still leading his battalion his group or battalion so we just sat you know for the day just amazing stories of bravery and and just every story just felt like you're in the middle of a hollywood movie what these young men had been through and this overwhelming you know like daniel and anatolia is like all they want to do is rehab to get back to the units i could fly a drone i could run logistics there's something i can do even though i'm missing these limbs they have a psychologist who sort of oversees the input of the young, the new amputees, essentially. And he had been shot down in the helicopter in 2015, paralyzed, burned up. And now he's there to help these young men reinterpret how their life is going to be. And, you know, you leave a day like that, it just, you know, wow. I mean, it's amazing. But it also created incredibly beautiful moments. There was a young man there called Sasha, lost a leg just below the hip and you know i got him on the back of the gs i had a gs850 adventure and it was, we were in this equine therapy center this beautiful valley and i put him on the back and we went riding along for 10 miles or so and on the way back i'm like so i slid off to the side and i took his hand and put on the throttle and lent out the way and he rode the bike back to the center and just to see his face light up that he's you know, riding a motorcycle that he didn't expect that day. So, you know, our emotional journey was, it was pretty steep, high to low. Sure. I imagine. I imagine, I, like I said, it's, you know, that was probably a very intense, I can only imagine a very intense three weeks, you know, I mean, it's that is, mm. I can only imagine what it's like to be uh, people that work as work correspondents, but what you and Kieran witnessed and documented is the very human toll of any war. I mean, again, like you said at the beginning, this isn't really about, politics or one side versus the other it's just that any war especially you know is is there's a an enormous human toll in terms of loss of life and injuries and 
families that are displaced and children that are orphaned and so forth that, um, you know, that is the the truly heartbreaking thing about well, any any kind of war or conflict. Yeah. And you don't realize that every single person inside Ukraine is affected. Like Omel, you know, it was never on the cards for him to complain about his life. He was just totally focused on us getting the right stories for the people. And, you know, it was the last evening we were in Ukraine and he kind of spills the beans or opened up a little bit, you know, he evacuated his wife and son to Poland five months previously. He hadn't seen two and a half month year old son for five months. And okay, he hasn't lost a limb, he hasn't his house blown up, you know, he, he's alive, but it's a cost to not see your child for five months and not know when you can see your child. And every single person, every single human that you came across inside Ukraine, you know, I saw a lady with a tear in her eye in, it was either in Bucha or Erpen, you know, where the initial tragedies or the, the mass graves were found. And she was revisiting her blown up apartment for the first time. And it was just, I mean, you don't even want to know. And she had a friend that was missing and had never found her. That obviously was just blown away and they couldn't even find anything. And I just saw this small tear in her eye talking about her friend and then it was gone. Yeah. And they just had incredible strength. I mean, you know, no complaining. I mean, we went in after missile strikes and shit was still on fire and they were cleaning up. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're not to be too graphic, but you're tripping over bits of human on the floor and they're cleaning up. They just absolutely are bound and determined that life is going to go on and life is going to be as normal as possible and this they're not going to leave the mess they're going to get it cleared up get it straight as quick as possible i mean i, I don't think i ever heard anybody complain and you know you would ride down the street sometimes and you're going past blown up malls you know blacked out churches the smell gets you the smell of burning and the lord knows what went on and then there's an old man outside his house and his wife's putting some flowers and he's painting the curb this is incredible resilience that life's going to go on and it's very humbling. You know, you feel, you, you know, and they had such great acceptance to us. And I really do think, and Kieran talked about it in one of our TV shows, I think the motorcycle was the key to us being able to go in to people, not to be disrespectful to anybody else and that we're doing better work than any other journalist. But suddenly after this time what is this this is something different a couple of hairy dudes on motorcycles what's going on here and it maybe was just that little shift that allowed us to have people open up so much to us well i certainly appreciate you sharing your images and karen's images and your story uh you know we've published that on writermagazine.com we're going to have mm -hmm. it in the magazine planning it for the january issue um, because it's just, again, uh, it's, there's what you see in the news, there's lots of different things, but there's a, a human side to all of this that uh, you both uh, have documented and shared. So how can people find out more about what you and Karen have done? You mentioned some TV shows. How can they sort of uh, find out more than what's just been on our website? Are there other places they can follow you and Karen to, to see what you've documented? I think the easiest way is to just you know, find any of my social media, Neil Bailey, it's really easy, you know, N-E-A-L-E-B-A-Y-L-Y. -E -E I'm like Tigger, I'm the only one. So Neil Bailey rides usually. It's very easy to follow me back to my foundation. If you want to make a donation, you will. Not everybody wants to. I understand that. You know, I do want to add one of the coolest parts about the trip for us 
I think was we found very, very interesting motorcycle stories. And it was quite interesting that being on motorcycles, we found motorcycle stories. And there's a lot of really heartwarming story. I mean, the one story I'd like to share, you know, we went into Mikolayov, which if you, you know, look at the map of Kherson uh, at the moment, where a lot of the action is, Mikolayev is really close. I mean, Odessa, where the grain issues, I mean, we were very, very close to the front line. And it was what they call a hot zone because the missile strikes were ongoing. So a lot of tension on border crossings. We needed OML to give us extra authorization to go into those places. Very strict set of rules of what you what you can do, can't do, can show, can't show. They're very very strict about that. You can't just go in and start you know doing Facebook Live or uploading stuff. And you know we we found an apartment complex that had been hit that morning. And again, they were clearing up. The thing was still on fire in places, and they're cleaning up. And we met a gentleman. His name is Ilya. And uh, his daughter was called Libov or Libov, which means love in Ukrainian, which is the most beautiful thing. This, here's this little angel in the rubble cleaning out her father's workshop and stuff. And he's a 75-year-old man. He does volunteer work in the neighborhood. And he's had this scooter since he was 18. And somehow this scooter survived this bombing. And we thought it was a Vespa. It was a Vespa thing. Looked like a Vespa, it had these strange, funky light cords coming behind the handlebars, which I didn't understand if it was something he had done. I didn't understand it. And um, so we took a bunch of photographs and we just thought this was so great that here's a 75 year old man. He's had this Vespa for 57 years and somehow it survived the missile attacks. I have no idea how. And uh, so, anyway, I, I sent pictures to Mel, Miguel Gluzzi, you know, the Piaggio designer, and said, hey, you want to send this to the Piaggio guys? This would be great PR for them, that one of their Vespas survived the bombing. And three days later, an email comes back, it's not a Vespa, it's a Soviet copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, hey, I, you know, I appreciate you sharing with us, you know, not only in this podcast, but like I said, I'll direct people, we'll have links in the show notes to where it can direct them to the story that's on our website. And then the subscribers to the print magazine, there'll be some stuff in the January issue. Hey, I, I really respect what you've done. I mean, not only uh, your trip to the Ukraine, which takes a lot of courage and fortitude, you want to share these very human stories, uh, but, you know, the work you've done on the philanthropy side, you know, you put your heart into it and you really, you know, are living what you believe. So I, I have a lot of respect for what you're doing, Neil. Well, I think we're motorcyclists, right? And we live outside society a little bit, riding motorcycles. And I think we have an incredible community. Yeah. I mean, motorcyclists help motorcyclists. I mean, you think about all the motorcycle charities that have existed over time. I mean, you know, for kids and for veterans and toys for tots. I mean, on and on and on and on. I mean, motorcyclists are constantly giving. And I think we're just using the motorcyclists as a tool to tell these stories and you know, I think that's why we're embracing Ukraine. We're motorcyclists. They know that we're good people. We, we're, we're coming to help. And that's that's everything that's come before me and everything that's been done you know, in the charity space with motorcycles and all of those people. So we appreciate, you know, you stepping up, running our articles, promoting us, doing podcasts. You know, I wouldn't be able to get the word out if it wasn't for people like yourselves, our relationship. But again, we're motorcyclists. We go back to you crashing on your press and trying to ride <laughs> But but that's but yeah. that's how life is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're we're we have we have the shared we have shared stories, shared experiences, and so I would certainly encourage people to check out Neil's work. Go to his uh, social media, his websites. Uh, make a donation. Hey, you know you're doing good work, and uh, that's where people can really support what you're doing, what your organization is doing. 
And just on a personal note, I'm sorry it's been so long since I've seen you, Neil. I mean, we used to see each other fairly regularly at press launches, but it, I don't even know how long it's been since I saw you in person. And, uh, you know, we both have a lot more gray hair than we used to, uh, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate the invitation to the Barber Advanced Design Center. I'd love to come out there and see that and visit with you and Brian to see the place, uh, you know, to, to soak up the museum, stuff like that. So I appreciate that. So one last thought to share. Thank you to everybody who donated as we were traveling. Um, it was really, really meaningful to see the money coming in and super meaningful for the Ukrainian people. When they found out that we were fundraising, I mean, we were in a market one day and an old lady said, can I donate? And we're like, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. You just keep everybody going here. All the money that we raise is going to the children's hospital in Lviv. It's a massive problem inside this children's hospital to, to deal with children that are victims of because pediatricians don't learn how to put children back together that have been bombed, shot, blown up, burned, mm -hmm. chemical stuff. That's not what pediatricians do. So there's a massive learning curve and there's an enormous amount of need in these children. So when you're giving, please know that that money is going to the children's hospital to help these kids and help their families. So it's really important. These are children. They don't have a dog in this fight. They're just trying to live their life. And don't forget, they're in a hospital that could get hit by a bomb any minute. I mean, that's the, that, I mean, they're still under pressure. Yeah. I, so again, we'll have links in the show notes, please, you know, uh, click through, uh, support what Neil's doing again. It was great to chat with you. I really appreciate your time. I know we got the time zone a little bit screwed up. I forgot you were in Alabama not in North Carolina, but, uh, it's well, always a pleasure to chat with you. So thank you for your time. All right, Greg, it's great. And, uh, looking forward to seeing you here at, uh, at the advanced design center inside the Bob Evans Motorsports Museum. Awesome. Uh, for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.